floats it over the top, bounces into the hands of Scully. Oh, oh great finish. Great finish from Blaine Scully. That should be it. It should be Corner's game. It should be Corner's trophy. It should be Europe for the boys. Champion triumph. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardiff Rugby Life podcast and uh, I'm going to start slightly differently in the podcast this week because usually I would just go straight into whatever the most recent on-field action was but we will get round to looking at the Wales game from the weekend of the loss to New Zealand and ahead to this weekend's second game of the Autumn Internationals against South Africa. We'll also have a look at the rags as the, they prepare to take on Newport on Friday night ahead of the next block of fixtures and the, the end of the Indigo Group Premiership Cup. But I'm going to start with uh, some news that has broken this week, which I think could be the biggest signing Cardiff have made in a good couple of years. Well, he releases now for Murray. Sexton. Farrell goes wide. Williams in. Now Faletau. Good Faletau's in. Whoa! Game on big time. Toby Faletau. So as I'm sure you've no doubt read by now after Mark Orders broke the news in Wales Online and then Bath announced that this player was leaving earlier in the week, uh, Talupu Faletau has been heavily linked with signing for Cardiff this week ahead of next season. Uh, it seems that according to Orders and then subsequently the, the other media outlets uh, who reported on it when Bath announced that Faletau was going to leave them for an unnamed Welsh side next summer, um, they were all linking him to Cardiff and it seems like that it's not definitely signed yet but it's pretty much set to be signed in terms of if Faletau obviously is leaving Bath and I think the reasons for that are probably a couple of them there was link in the Daily Mail to the fact that there's this agents versus clubs battle ongoing in England at the moment regarding a change in uh, HMRC tax rules Um, and it also links no doubt to the changes in the salary cap over there due to the coronavirus pandemic with uh, it coming down to £5 million and I think they're only allowed one marquee player now rather than two outside of that salary cap so he's obviously on a lot of money at Bath and if they're not seeing him too much because of injuries and international call-ups then it makes sense for them to move him on especially as looking at how their season has started they'll be wanting to make a good couple of changes at the rec I would imagine over the next few months um, so it's it's all uh, fine from their end and obviously from our end then uh, when it, in terms of Faletau coming back to Wales it seems pretty sensible that he would come to Cardiff you look at the Dragons and they've got um, Moriarty and, and Wainwright down there uh, the Ospreys have got a good couple of, of young guys coming through Morgan Morris seems to be a, a bit of a, a future star at number 8 there even if maybe slightly undersized but uh, looks pretty good and then uh, the Scarlets have got Guys like Sione Calamafoni and Carwin Tuipilotu coming through as well, their system. So uh, it seems you might say that he could go to the Ospreys, but I think Cardiff is the best fit for him in terms of we haven't really we haven't replaced big Nick Williams there. We've got James Ratty filling in at the moment. Also, I understand that Falatau's wife uh, or partner is, is from Cardiff, so it would make sense them moving back here and playing for the local side, as it were. Um, from our point of view then uh, obviously there was, there's always going to be one or two naysayers when a signing like this pops up um, but I think anything any points that people can raise can be counted pretty easily so uh, in terms of the player who is coming back Faletau is still a world-class operator you know he's an 86 cap Wales international he's five times Lions test player he's gone on two tours he's won six nations and grand slams he's only just turned or is about to turn 31 so he's still got plenty of good years left and I've no doubt that he's targeting 
the next World Cup and maybe even the Lions Tour beyond that then. Um, so, you know, we're getting one of the best number eights in the world at the end of the day. In terms of how much he'll play for us, he averages uh, around 10 and a half starts, I think it is, for Bath over the last four or five years, which is a pretty good return considering he plays in an abrasive position. He is an abrasive player, but also he, he uh, misses large chunks of the season due to internationals as well. So to get 10 and a half games out of him a season would be good. And then it's not any waste of money as such because he is almost certainly going to be in the, this National 38 where the WIU will make payments worth 80% of his wages to us. So for, for our point of view at the moment, when you're looking at our standard budget for next season, if you're saying, look, if uh, I think the maximum that we can offer in the wage banding is £400,000. So from our current budget, if we're setting aside £80,000 to get 10 games a season out of a world-class player like Talupe Falatau, that's a fantastic business decision, if you ask me. That's more than value for money. If he plays in four or five derbies, three or four European games, and a couple of league games beyond that, you get £80,000 worth out of him, I would say. I think you can also then say as well that we'll probably make some of that £80,000 back in terms of the commercial success that he will bring with him, no doubt. You know, he's one of the biggest name players in the world. He'll bring sponsors. People will come down and sit in hospitality just to watch him. People will buy tickets to games just to watch guys like Tulupe Falatau play. And that's where I think I mentioned at the, the top of the podcast that he is one of our biggest signings in years obviously we've signed good players in recent years I've got people like josh adams for example coming in as wales internationals halame moss as well but none of them have had the profile of talupa falatau and in terms of signing a ready-made world-class player still at the top of his game or close to it with that profile i think it's our biggest signing since gething came back from toulon so what's that, seven or eight years ago now that he returned? That That's how big I think it is for us as a club uh, in terms of bringing him on board. And obviously, we have a lot of back rowers. People point out that it's a position of strength for us. But what we actually have is a lot of flankers, sixes and sevens coming out of our ears. There are sixes and sevens within that who can play at eight and be a bit more mobile, like, like uh, Will Boyd, Josh Nvidi, uh, James Botham, for example. But we haven't replaced big Nick Williams with... Uh, in terms of you know that big ball carrying presence, somebody you can carry in the wide channels and in the central channels. Falatau's got the offload game, got the good handling, and and simply will attract defenders by being on the pitch and in turn create space for others. So, I think in terms of you know uh, value for money, in terms of his profile, in terms of what he brings on the pitch, and in terms of how he fills a position of need for Cardiff, it's essentially a no-brainer for us and maybe it links in again with some players moving on next summer if you're maybe Sam Moore or Will Boyd or Ollie Robinson maybe Alan Lawrence you're thinking oh you know am I hanging around at the Arms Park but you know it, professional sport is is a bit cutthroat at the end of the day and sometimes you have to say goodbye to these players to bring in better quality players and improve the standard at the club overall so it that side of it is tough but in terms of purely Falatau coming to Cardiff I think it'd be a great bit of business if we can get it over the line and, and hopefully we do announce that he is coming to the Arms Park next season sooner rather than later. Ellis Jenkins, seven. James Ratty, eight in the middle of that scrimmage at the back. Ratty controls now. Thomas Williams comes left and goes on his own, slips the pass to Willis Halaholo. Oh, beautifully worked. Very smart. Moving on to the first bit of on-field action then for the podcast and Cardiff RFC are back in action on Friday night as we host Newport at the Arms Park. I believe it's a 7.15pm 
kickoff and your Cardiff rugby season ticket does get you entry included with that. Otherwise, I think it's £12 for adults, so not too bad if you want to come down and see some Friday night rugby under the lights. It's going to be a cracking game. Uh, first v second in the Eastern Division of the Indigo Group Premiership Cup as we go into the last four or five games of that competition before the final. Uh, obviously, local derby as well, bragging rights at stake. Cardiff needs to gain revenge for uh, losing in the second round of the season back in early October time. Uh, Newport, since then, I think have got better uh, looking at their results and the highlights and the way they're playing. They were sort of, uh, they struggled. I think they lost their first game against Pontypridd and then there was narrow wins over us and over Merthyr, but they've really kicked on the last few weeks and got a big win over Ebuvale the game before last. Uh, beat Pontypridd 27-11, so a relatively comfortable win at their new Newport Stadium last time out. They've had a week to recover. They've been able to put out a pretty consistent squad, and I think that has helped where their confidence has grown then. They're playing together regularly, and now they're feeling like they can beat anyone. You know, they don't they don't have massive names in terms of the Premiership. They don't have much help from the Dragons in terms of professional quality players, but they've got you know, good, hard-working lads, a couple of ex-Cardiff players in there who we know are guys who will give you 110% every time they go out on field and, and always put in a 7 out of 10 performance. And when you've got a majority of a squad like that, then you're always going to hang in games. And when you've got that bit of confidence, then you can just push yourself over the edge. So that's where Newport are at the moment. For the Rags, obviously, a good win last time out, uh, bouncing back from the against RGC, that was bouncing back from the defeat against Merthyr the week before. We've been playing good rugby. Um, Defence has probably been a little bit too leaky for our liking at times. Attack then, on the flip side, you know, thinking of the last 20 minutes against Merthyr where we were camped on their line and just couldn't get over. You know, it hasn't quite clicked all at the right time, but we've managed to, to grind out some games. We've put some really good performances in others, particularly in tough weather conditions like away at Ebu Vale. Uh, we are obviously a team that is still developing as uh, having been properly aligned with the first team and being a proper rags now losing on 45 players is a lot of players for that first group of games but hopefully we can properly put together a good run of fixtures now it's a, it's a tough one Newport then playing Ebu Vale at home before away at Pontypridd and home to Merthyr you know none of them are easy games necessarily but if we can get a good run of, uh, of wins to go into the premiership season proper starting in mid-December that would be great there's a sort of subplot then of the next uh, three or four weeks for the Rags, which is that obviously whilst the Ultimate Internationals are on, there's no first team games. But when the first team does return, it's away at South Africa on the last weekend of November. Some of the other professional clubs um, are having sort of A-team games between themselves. So I think the Scarlets are playing the Dragons and the Ospreys. And then they're just playing the Scarlets and not playing any others just to keep guys fresh and get them fit for the end of the the autumn internationals and playing again then when the the urc begins once again cardiff however are choosing just to use the premiership so you'd have to imagine that we'll see some first teamers playing for the rags over the next few weeks and uh, i went through the squad and had to look who i think that could be and there's quite a long list of names who will need either a little bit more match fitness ahead of south africa or will need some full stop having not appeared yet but will probably be playing when we go down to face the lions and the stormers so Going through from front row down to back three, you've got Reese Gill, Kieran Azarati, Scott Andrews, Ben Murphy, Teddy Williams, Ollie Robinson, uh, Alan Lawrence, uh, Ellis Bevan, Jason Tovey, Max Llewellyn, Garen Smith and Alid Summerhill, who have all either played naught or no more than about 120 minutes uh, for either first or second team so far this season. 
Then there's a couple of guys who might be back from injury as well. So you've got James Botham in that. Uh, you've got Jamie Hill in that. Maybe Luke Scully and Mason Grady as well. So these guys, there's, that's a lot of them. And you're not going to want to play them all at once. So they're going to have to try and figure out exactly who plays in what games. And also make sure that balance is struck as well between getting the semi-pro guys game time giving the development opportunities to the academy boys. It's going to be a, a tricky balancing act for a couple of weeks for Steve Law, Griff Reese, and Die Young to get it right. But hopefully uh, they'll come out of it with a good couple of results, good fitness for the first team guys, and to continue in the development of the younger guys. If that's the case, then it'll be very successful a few weeks. And that starts uh, in tomorrow night's game. So as I said, do get down to the Arms Park for a 7.15 kickoff and support the Rags if you can. Ben Fry has to let go. Penalty to Cardiff again. Hallam Amos chases the little dink by Lloyd Williams. Amos is going to win the race. Jumping back to off-field stuff uh, just for a second in the middle of the podcast then, and I mentioned on last week's podcast that I would touch on the well, supporter director stuff in inverted commas uh, as it was announced by Cardiff a few weeks ago. So in case you haven't seen the news, basically Cardiff, uh, Cardiff Rugby have announced that they're creating, I think they're calling it a supporter advisor to the board position, uh, whereby supporter will be able to uh, apply for and then uh, potentially go into a ballot of other supporters to represent us on the terraces uh, at the boardroom level uh, in board meetings and although I don't think it'll be a voting position you will be able to speak at board meetings you'll be able to offer thoughts of supporters on certain aspects and then also the board can use that person then as a, a sort of go between between them and the supporters to get views before discussing things as well so um, it's it's something which is uh, very much welcomed. Is should have been happening a long time ago. I think if you know, in this modern sporting age, supporters are, need to be more involved than ever. And you look at some of the best-run football and rugby clubs; they're often the ones that are closest with their supporters, either supporter run or really good uh, communication between supporter organisations, or just getting supporter directors set up and, and on the board already. Um, so. It's, a, it's it's late but better late than never is probably what you would say and that's probably a fair strap line for Cardiff Rugby in general to be fair um, I think it's a credit to particularly some of the work done by the guys at the CF10 Arms Park Rugby Trust who made it a big objective of theirs when they uh, got up and running a couple of years ago to try and get more supporter representation at that level so good on them ably assisted by uh, the Cardiff Rugby Supporters Club and also they've had a lot of help from the Chris 16 Trust down at the Scarlets as well who uh, have already got somebody, uh, one of their representatives I think in a similar position whereby they're not board members but they are uh, able to speak at board meetings so all good stuff there um, I think the only small gripe I have with it is that basically one of the uh, stipulations for the person applying for the role was that they needed to have previous board experience which I think maybe needlessly strikes out some people from it because I think there'd be plenty of people who would be able to offer plenty at board level um, from a supporter's point of view who maybe haven't had board experience previously but it's only a small gripe and I think most people will have uh, because they've included that you can uh, have sat on a supporter's group 
board uh, or committee previously, then that counts then. They have managed to just about open it up enough for everyone. So good stuff. Um, I can't remember the dates or totally off the top of my head in terms of when you have to apply for it and when the voting will open. But basically, um, you send off an application, which is on the Cardiff Rugby website. They check over it, uh, make sure that you are suitably qualified. And then everybody who is will go into an open ballot for Cardiff Rugby season members, CF10 trust members, Cardiff Rugby supporters club members, and I think probably rugby section of the Cardiff Athletic Club maybe as well. Um, anybody who's a member of them can have one vote. You don't get multiple votes if you're members of a few things. It's just one vote per person if you are one of those things. Um, and then the and they will announce it in early to mid-December who is sitting on the board then. Hopefully they'll announce the list of, of candidates for voting soon and um i could try i think i'll try maybe and, and get them on the podcast and ask them a few questions or at least ask them a few questions for the website try and give supporters uh, an opportunity to get to know them a bit i'm sure the club will do something similar as well but um it'd be cool to to do it from supporter to supporter and ask them maybe questions that the club wouldn't ask them um so uh keep a, an eye out for that and, and when stuff is all announced i'll cover it fully on social media and on the website as well Beyond that then, I think there's probably a point to be made that as good as it is to announce that this is being done and that the supporter advisor to the board position is being created, it is then up to the board to make a success of that. Obviously, the, the person elected themselves will have their own job to do, but the board must be actively listening to this person, taking on um, their thoughts, using them to, to communicate with supporters and vice versa, accepting when supporters want to use that person to communicate with the board. But also understanding that just because that person is there doesn't mean they they stop addressing supporters uh, on a wider front directly. You know, we're at a situation now in early November where I can't remember the last time we heard from Alan Jones or, or Dickie Holland in terms of like a CEO newsletter or uh, a direct updates from the club email wise. Or we certainly haven't had any Q and A type things. All we've had is is this announcement about the supporter advisor recently. So. It'd be good to get them up and running soon and, and the club should be making sure that this supporter advisor position is successful but also not forgetting that they still need to communicate directly with the supporters at large as well. Popping the ball up to Seb Davis. That was Papali coming through. Priestland with a grab and throw. Chance for Wales. Johnny Williams. Finishing the podcast this week then with the international section of the podcast and we start with looking back to last Saturday where Wales fell to a 16-54 defeat to New Zealand at the Principality Stadium which when you say it out loud doesn't sound good, when you write it down doesn't look good either but weirdly in terms of how the game went and obviously with it being outside the window and all of the players missing plus the uh, injury and availability as well I honestly think that went about as well as it could have for Wales. Um, I said on the podcast last week that you know my thoughts and prayers were with them ahead of a walloping, and and we were comprehensively beaten. But we were in the game for sixty minutes, and we had opportunities to lead in those sixty minutes as well. I should say, uh, unfortunately, the All Blacks, where the game opened up a bit later on, and and where they brought good quality off their bench absolutely blew us away in that final 20 minutes some of their kick transition stuff was superb some of the handling was just stunning to watch uh, and they were deserved winners you know they 
uh, maybe being a little bit more restrictive, a little bit tighter in their attacking game in the first uh, 50 or 55 minutes or so as the weather wasn't great. And obviously their first game, uh, having come over from America and on the back of the rugby championship as well, there's a bit of maybe rustiness to shake off. But once they, they turned the gas on and, and really let themselves play a bit, they were just a joy to behold, really, and, and well-worthy winners. But... For Wales' point of view, I thought there were there was a positive in that I thought our attacking game was pretty decent in that first 55-60 minutes. I thought when we had the ball, we held on to it relatively well. We got over the gain line, got some nice attacking pictures in. Didn't quite ever you know fashion a proper line break, but there were moments where you know we did have half breaks or options to get the offloads away, and they just didn't quite go to hand. So that's at least something to build on. We were able to put pressure on the opposition and just couldn't quite take advantage then when. We did win penalties and, and go to the corner, which leads into the negatives, of course, leading with that line out, which, I mean, it just fell apart, really. And I've seen you know a lot of criticism of Ryan Elias in particular, but I do think when a line out falls apart and you just blame the hooker, there is an element of lazy analysis about that because I did a little thread about it on Thursday morning on Twitter that... You know, Ryan Elias wasn't didn't have a great game line out throw in, and line out throw in is not necessarily a massive strength of his. Um, but he that was only a part of the reason that the line-out fell apart and that Adam Beard, as the presumable line-out caller, has to take his share of responsibility and Jonathan Humphreys, as the forwards coach, has to take a good share of responsibility as well because looking through the first four line-outs uh, that we threw in at the game, the first one on halfway-ish, New Zealand concede the front, we throw there and oppose, come off the top, play into midfield and when you play off the top from a line-out to the front... You give the opposition defence that extra sort of 5-10 metres of where the ball has to move, which equates to about a second or two, um, to get up in your face. Obviously, Barrett goes through, makes the interception and goes under the posts. Second throw then down in the New Zealand 22-ish uh, area. They concede the front, or they look to, uh, but then step into that space at the last moment, compete with us at the front and disrupt the ball. The third line out then, which is the first time we properly kick into the corner, and having, uh, with Retallick and, and Whitelock, having basically got inside our heads rent-free by looking to concede the front and then challenging at the front, we're all over the place. We go in, we call it to the middle, and instead of feinting to the front or feinting to the back at all and then moving forward, we rush straight, put the Adam Beard straight up in the air and overthrow him quite comfortably to lose the ball. But if we had taken our time, seen what New Zealand were doing, maybe throw a feint in there, we'd have realised, of course, that they weren't planning on competing. They were inside our head so much, they didn't even need to do anything for us to miss the line-out. They just wanted to wait there and set up for a defensive mall situation if we did manage to get the ball, which, if we'd gone for the feint, we could have seen that they weren't competing, secured it comfortably at the front, and then tried to get into more position quicker than they did. So they're inside our head, and then by the time the fourth line-out comes, after they clear the line back down towards halfway, the line-out is completely disintegrated. Nobody seems to know what the call is. Aaron Wainwright gets lifted by one lifter, doesn't get off the ground properly, the throw is off anyway, and we only just managed to scramble to hang on to the ball. And that, obviously, you know, the line-out call in there, uh, Beard gets absolutely outdone by Retallick and, and Whitelock. The throw in itself isn't great, but also, you know, what is Jonathan Humphreys doing with these guys as Wales forwards coach? He's had them for two weeks in camp. Yes, Ken Owens withdraws late-ish, but Elias is going to be on the bench anyway. How is it that your line-out training means that after one or two poor throws, the whole thing just collapses? Surely you're making sure these guys are well-drilled enough and have all of the potential sort of 
scenarios and outcomes so that they can recover from one or two poor lineouts and get back to securing good ball. I just, you know, that that's a coaching failure above all else. Where there are questions to be asked of the the call in and the throw in, it's a coaching failure for me. So that's something that went wrong. I thought our fringe defence wasn't too great either. Obviously, it was a strength of New Zealand's, and where they were playing a bit tighter, they did really turn that on. Um, but we didn't get set very quickly, and we weren't very physical in our defence around there. Um, and then the other thing is kick chase, which I've spoken about before and I've written about on the website before. And, and Ben James did a piece on Wales Online this week looking at the sort of organisation of our kick chase and how we're coming up in two waves of players, neither of which are particularly strong. So that got cut apart. And then when we do come up in one wave, it's quite dogleggy and a little bit lazy in areas. Um, you've got some people like solo blitzing almost as a, a kick chaser and others jogging in behind. But I still think the overwhelming issue is that the, how we're getting set for kicking in the first place particularly when it's box kicking away from our own 22 sort of behind our own 10 meter line the obviously the aim is to, to kick long and chase well but if you look at will jordan's uh try i don't know he's called one or two the one way he's chipped it over the top of thomas anyway um we we go to kick there and the ruck to set it up is carried into by Seb Davis, who was playing at Blindside Franco at the time. The first ruck clean there is Tane Basham. And then the guy moving the ball back so that Thomas can kick it is Aaron Wainwright. So that's all your back row stuck in that breakdown. The chasers are then Will Rowlands, Adam Beard, uh, Thomas Francis and Ryan Elias. So four of your type five going up alongside Josh Adams against Will Jordan, one of the, the best young wingers in the world. He goes, has a guy on his right-hand side who draws the attention of Adams. He goes past Adam Beard and Will Rowlands like they're not there. And then he straight into the secondary, chips it over the top and scores. If you have it so that you take one more phase, you put Beard, Rowlands, Francis and, say, Wynne Jones in into that breakdown. And then your chasers are Ryan Elias and then the three back rowers. Is that a better kick chase? You've got more mobile guys. You've got guys who are more likely to get up into Will Jordan's face a bit quicker so he can't run it back at you. And then if he does try and get by, then you can at least affect a tackle or get a hand on him to slow him down so that the cover can come across and make a tackle on him. That's what I, it seems pretty simple to me, but it's not something that gets changed when you know it's the same problem that we had back last autumn and during the Six Nations as well. So hopefully it'll finally get addressed after last weekend. To try and finish on a positive note from the New Zealand game, at least uh, individually, I thought uh, Tame Basham had a, a really fantastic game. One of his first starts, obviously, I think potentially the first time he's played against Tier 1 opposition in outside of a summer international where Lions guys are away, but he did not look out of place at all. Defensively, very good, really strong over the ball, good tackler, but in attack in particular, he really stands out. Some of the lines he picks, he's kind of like Hamish Watson-esque in terms of how he pinballs around a bit as well. He struggled to... Defender struggled to get a proper hand on him, which is really good. So great to see him playing well. Thought Aaron Aaron Wainwright looked a good eight again. Uh, obviously a bit more mobile, a bit more athletic than some eights are, but he covers the backfield very well as part of that. Then he can uh, carry more centrally, but also stretch his legs into the wider channel. He's obviously got a good turn of pace. He does restrict the back row selection slightly at times because you do need a more physical presence at six to go with him usually. Uh, but great player and, and has settled into that number eight position really well, having previously played at a six most of his career. Uh, I thought Thomas Williams looked really good on on Saturday. Um, some of his work to create space with his footwork around the fringes of the breakdown was excellent. 
really nice offloads created at least two line breaks one for Basham and one for Seb Davis uh, his kicking was decent enough and I've mentioned about the kick chase earlier no kicks are only as good as their chase at the end of the day uh, but there was one really nice nudge into the corner as well which pinned New Zealand back so good performance from him uh, and then finally, I thought I thought Johnny McNichol had a good game. I have to say, I thought a bit of criticism. Um, I saw a bit on t- Twitter in particular after the game. I don't really look on Facebook after Wales games, but a few guys saying he, they didn't think he did too well. And obviously, he did throw the final interception. Um, but I think that was more born out of you know being thirty odd points down or whatever we were at the time, and just trying to create something out of nothing. I don't think he throws that if the game is tight or it's earlier in the game at all. So. Um, I thought apart from that, you know, his his work defensively was pretty good. Once he got his bearings positionally, I thought he was pretty spot on there. Um, he looked dangerous on the counter-attack every time. And, and I really enjoyed particularly the way he influenced attacking phase play, popping up at first receiver at times, hitting the line a little bit wider at other times. He's got a real natural aptitude for when to hit the line and where to hit it. And hopefully, as he plays a bit more at this level... Um, other players around him will figure out that actually he's a great player to run off as well. Um, he can get the ball away from the tackle area, offloads the last minute or little um, passes just away from the point of contact. So if we can build that around him, I think he could become a really good asset over the next sort of two, three years as we build to the World Cup. And obviously you've got Liam Williams there, so the world, uh, world-class quality operator. But McNichol just adds that little bit of something different in attack, which I think really suits the way that Pivak wants to play. Moving on then to this weekend's fixture, South Africa, the world champions, come into Cardiff. It's going to be, you know, brutal at the end of the day. The side that South Africa have named is massive, of course. Um, they've got some of the best players in the world at the moment operating and, and even look at their bench and the guys who haven't made the squad altogether. You know, they're, they're still leaving guys like Faf de Klerk and Cheslin Colby out because of injury or whatever. Um some of the front rowers in particular who can't even get in the squad at the moment. Uh, look at somebody like Wilco Lowe at, at Harlequins, for example, who's not in, included because Vincent Cock is ahead of him or Trevor Nayakane or Oxen Che. You know, they, these are some of the best props in the world. They can't even get in the South Africa squad, which is mad, really. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be a tough one, I think. What we saw from the Lions tour was that you just have to try and go as nose-to-nose with them up front as possible. But when it comes to attack, there is opportunities if you can get around their initial blitz. They do come up hard in the sort of 10-12, just inside the 13 channel. But if you can move the ball beyond that, there is space to open up. And obviously, we've got Josh Adams, we've got Lewis Rees-Samit out there, both fine wingers who can take advantage of that. So that's the real key for Wales in attack is... Trying to not necessarily get on the gain line, as I like to say, that doesn't matter too much. We're trying to create quick enough ball that we can play flat to the line and move around uh, Luciano Am at 13 and get into the space outside him. This brings me on to the team selection that we've made, which does concern me slightly. So we made six changes, um, and within that, I think, I have to say, it's great to see Ellis Jenkins back in the international arena after nearly three years away um, and it's also a huge opportunity for Reese Carey starting at Loosehead Prop, who there's obviously been a few comments about on Twitter and stuff this week. But as I've, I've tweeted about, he is still only 23. I think it's easy to forget that because he feels like he's been around a while now. Obviously, he broke onto the scene quite young. And he's also had that year away at Saracens, which makes him seem like he's been going for a bit longer than he actually has. But 23 is very young for a prop. I think he's only really developed into his body and got his... Um, got himself in a good physical condition after having a full summer of pre-season this season 
He's got his scrummaging technique a lot better. I feel like his base is a lot stronger, which allows him to really use his power to drive through a bit more. Um, or hold it steady, as the case may well be on Saturday, that we just want to try and be as rock solid as possible. We're not going to go chasing um, that South Africa scrum at all. So if he can get that down, he's sorted. And obviously, we know what he can bring around the field. He's got good hands. He's a good ball carrier. He's a willing jackal as well, so he'll offer in defence. Um, but if he has a good game, I think this could be the start of something where he kicks on and, and perhaps goes to the World Cup as first choice. You know, Wynne Jones is a great player, very good scrummager, a very good jackal as well, but doesn't have the attacking game necessarily that Wynne Jones, uh, that Reese Carey has. So if Carey has a good performance with his scrummaging um, on Saturday, then he could well kick on from there and maybe claim the one jersey a bit sooner than he might have thought. Um, back to the changes as a whole. We've... Uh, so. Jenkins is in for the injured Moriarty. Reese Carey preferred to win Jones. You've got Will Rowlands has come in for the injured Alan Win Jones. Um, and then in the backs, bigger slot straight in at 10 now that he's available. Reese Samit slot straight in at right wing instead of Owen Lane now that he's available. And then they've opted for Nick, Nick Tompkins over Johnny Williams in the centre, which I didn't think Johnny Williams had a great game last week. Uh, so I, I'm not too fussed about him being dropped. But I think I'd have personally liked to have seen John Davis play at 12, which should be his position for Wales now for me. And then maybe given somebody like Owen Lane to go at 13 would have been a big ask up against Am, who's probably the best outside centre in the world at the moment. But, um, you know, no time like the present and all that for something like a, a change where it's a position where we haven't got huge depth. So why not give him a go there and, and see how he gets on? Um, but anyway, my issue with it is that I look at the Wales... 15 in particular but the 23 as well and I just don't know what we're going to do to win I don't know what the game plan is going to be I don't know where our point of difference is if if you're saying we're going to be a bit more expansive because we've picked maybe a more mobile back row with the two sevens in Jenkins and Basham okay but I think the second rows are relatively immobile Beard doesn't offer a lot in open play Rollins is, is a very much sort of post-to-post -post type player. He, he'll run you forward. He's up and down, but he's not going to offer, you know, neither of them have got great hands. They're not going to offer much outside of the centre of the pitch. And then you've got Bigger at 10, who I don't is not, you know, a naturally expansive and, and playmaking fly half. With Davis at 13 then, who doesn't have the pace anymore to utilise... Um, any space that we actually make on that wider channel you know if we're gonna get into any space it's gonna have to be in spite of John Davis rather than because of him probably um so that that confuses me slightly um I think because then if you're saying that we're gonna go big and be physical then you know we've picked a slightly lighter back row uh so that doesn't necessarily add up to me and, and if we're going to be more I'd say attritional and, and try and be direct with our backs. Nick Tompkins isn't a massive crash ball carrier from 12. Um, and if we're going to kick a lot, then, you know, Tompkins and Davis is a centre partnership going and chasing kicks. Yes, Tompkins does look a bit better this season. Back at Saracens, he's lost some of the weight that the Welsh Rugby Union bizarrely told him to put on while he was at the Dragons. And he is looking a bit sharper. But you know, he's he's not... He's not a naturally flair player, I don't think. I think he has got a decent pass on him and he can spot if the, if the player's on to go wide. But I don't think he plays with much of his own initiative. I think it, in at Saracens, it's very rigid and very structured in the way that they play and that he thrives within that. And that with Pivax Wales, it's going the opposite way to that and that it, it relies a bit more on individual X-factor and flair. So... 
I, d I don't know. I think there's a lot of questions to be asked and I do wonder what Pivak is going to be telling them in training this week because from where I'm sat, I can't see what he can tell this team uh, in order for them to get the win on the weekend. I, I hope to be proved wrong and I'd, I really would love it if we beat South Africa because um, I think they're there to be taken down a peg or two. But it's difficult to envisage at the moment anyway. Uh, if you go into that game, enjoy it. Enjoy Cardiff on the match day. If you go in uh, to the Rags game on Friday, uh, see you down there hopefully and, and enjoy that one as well. Uh, next week on the podcast, we'll have a look back at both games, both playing again the following week. And we'll start to have a look at maybe what Dai's thinking in terms of his squad for South Africa. Until then, come on the Rags! <laughs>